Ephesians. So I'm going to go and uh, get started into our sermon series. We're in the book of Revelation, which is a little bit maybe um, different or new for some of you, because if you're jumping in in August, this is a brand new series for you. But we're actually about four sermons in, uh, five sermons in. And so we're jumping into the middle of one of the seven letters uh, to the churches of Revelation. We're in the fourth one right now. So let me go ahead and open up in a word of prayer, and then I'll jump into it. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us here. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the ways by which you have gathered us, uh, wherever it is that we're going to be going to school, wherever it is that we came from. Father, we are here now, and we're grateful for that. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we have the opportunity to engage with your word, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would remind us, God, of who Jesus is, remind us of who we are, and then help us to look deeply into how we are living out our relationship with you in this world, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our group of friends, or even as we're looking ahead to the college that you're sending us to, we pray, Father, that as we're going through these letters in particular, and there's a word in it for all of us, God, that you would just draw attention to yourself and help us, God, to see Jesus as who he describes himself to be, not only our Lord, not only our Savior, but God, King, the one who reigns, the one who is the greatest. We pray, Father, that you allow that just to sink in more and more as we go through this week. And as we go through this series, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, just a little bit of an overview then. Um, this is kind of how these seven letters come together. So first of all, the seven letters are to seven specific churches. So they're gatherings of Christians in seven different cities. And it actually started in chapter two with Ephesus, which is probably the most famous city of that time. Uh, and so it was a great commercial city, political city, cultural city. It uh, doesn't exist anymore. Most of these churches really, they don't exist the way that they were before now. And that's always a reminder for us that really nothing necessarily man-built lasts forever, but the same God reigns forever. But we started in Ephesus with uh, Church One, Smyrna, Pergamos, and then this week we're going to be at Thyatira. So you kind of see even the way by which John received this vision, the letters are receiving, are being received by the churches in a way that if you were to travel and visit them all, you would start from Ephesus, you go clockwise, you would end up in Nicosia. So we're really going on a journey, even though 2,000 years we moved, but with people for which if they were to receive, they'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. I can imagine myself seeing these people in these churches at these places and be able to hear the gospel and be able to worship together and gather together with other Christians. Now, each of these letters consists of a, a, an assembly of parts. Um, many of them have all five. Some of them have less than five. Uh, but these are the parts in each of these letters. And that kind of makes sense, right? When you're writing a letter, when you receive a letter, there's kind of a format. And so in these letters to the churches of Revelation, there's all these components as Jesus is speaking to each one that oftentimes is contained. There always is a pointing to who is talking, and that's Christ. There's always a very beautiful portrayal of Jesus, which is all of Revelation 1, right? But then it goes on to usually name one aspect of what was described in the beginning to say, oh, yeah, it's the same Jesus that is now talking to you. Uh, there, goes, there goes on to be a praise for that church, some things that they're doing well. Then they flip to a criticism of that church. And for this church in particular, Thyatira, the criticism is kind of lengthy. Uh, it's pretty lengthy, even though it's uh, very simple in terms of what Jesus is pointing out. Then there's an application. So what do you do about it? How do you encounter the criticism? How do you turn it back? How do you you know, please Christ and what you're doing. And then finally, there's a promise. And this promise is connected to much more than just the immediate. There's a promise of something that Jesus will give to God's people. And so it's always challenging people to look ahead. Now, in Thyatara, 
uh, we find something pretty interesting here. Uh, this is the, the middle letter out of seven, so number four. It's the longest letter out of all seven, but this city is probably the least prominent out of all seven. Uh, this is one of those cities where it was much more known for manufacturing. Uh, they made stuff, uh, whether it was like leather goods, whether it was, you know, bronzeware, whether it was, you know, things that you can buy there. They weren't known for being like a, a cultural kind of trend-setting kind of city. It was a place where things are made. People bought things and then they left. So this was not as well known of a city, but this city received the longest letter. And so that's kind of helpful for us to think, because even a lot of times when we're going through the process of, you know, college and, and work and everything else, where we're going to live, so on and so forth, a lot of times we think, oh, you know, we, we're attracted to things that are the shiniest or places that are the biggest or people that are the coolest. But as it relates to God's people, as it relates to these churches, it wasn't that the most important city got the longest letter. The longest letter went to the most relatively obscure city. Uh, but then also, as it's going to Thyatara, uh, there's some aspects about the city that we want to make note of. Uh, this city is known for gatherings of workers in these things called guilds or unions. There's a lot of activity that were connected to people that then were in different industries. And as they're then in these guilds and industries, what they do then is they have their rituals. So there's different things that they do, traditions that they have, and gods, local deities that they worship. And so this is like a, a vibrant place of all kinds of religions because there's all kinds of trades that have their own gods. I mean, if you were to go to you know, a place in the world where there was a lot more of that kind of a, a vibe, you know, if you go to East Asia, a lot of times there would be like a Buddhist shrine in every single corner. And that's because that particular god or that particular idol serves a particular purpose for that area. And it's kind of like that where you identify with a particular you know, place to worship or a particular God. Well, it's like that there. So it was highly religious, but it wasn't the worship of Christ or the one true God primarily. Also, there's also a lot of pagan worship there. So this is where, you know, certain uh, gods such as Apollo was worshiped. He's the sun God. And so this is a major God. And so it's all kinds of activity, all kinds of religious culture, but, you know, that's where this church finds itself. So interestingly enough, when we see the words to Christ, imagine if you lived in Thyatara, how you would receive that. And let me go ahead and read that for us. The words are on the screen for you. This is also, I mean, it's in God's word, chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatara write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So how is Jesus being described. He's the son of God, so he's the greatest. He's above all of the gods that you worship, whether it's pagan worship or trade worship, local deity, it doesn't matter. God is greater. Christ is greater in all these things. He sees into your heart, flame of fire. He sees through you and goes beyond your behavior and what you do. So you might live a religiously pious life in your even pagan worship or local deity worship, but he sees to your heart right and that's for christians too right he sees right to your heart and then feet like burnished bronze well that's stable that's secure in fact they make that stuff there in that city and so jesus is introducing himself as whatever it is that you guys are and you think that you're good at i am the god above and beyond that i am the king of all the things that you guys do well and now i have something to say to you that's a proclamation of christ Let's see how Jesus commends them. In verse 19, 
Bible says this, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So what were they being praised for? Simply serving God. They were faithful. They have been faithful, and they do it with a love of God. They're actually serving God because they want to. This contrasts Ephesus, where they were really busy as well, and their ministries were active and flourishing. But what was the criticism of Ephesus? You've lost your first love. They were running like a machine, but it wasn't because they loved God. They were running like a machine because they were Ephesus, and that's what Ephesians do. These people served because they loved God. They loved him. They were faithful to him, even with all the distractions and other gods that were conforming them to how they should live, at least in their church and in their activity and their ministries and using their gifts to build up the body of Christ, serving in the community. They've been faithful. In fact, not only have they been faithful, they've actually grown in this. So it's not like now they're just kind of, you know, puttering along and they're just like fizzling out. No, you know, a couple generations later, they're stronger than they were when they were founded. And so that is a praise. So that there is a, a generational passing of the gospel, generational passing of a church that is committed to each other and committed to the city, committed to the community. I mean, if they were to get a report card, you know, for their first semester, it would be, you know, an A in every single class, right? And then the notes would be, yeah, you know, best student ever, you know, great effort. You know, we love this kid. That's what that tar would be like if it was to be graded for its ministry and its love of God. That's what makes the criticism on one level um, harder to understand and maybe even harsher to receive. And as, as, I work, as we're working through this, I, I hope that we would engage with God's word. Um, and then we'll come back to, to try to tie it up in a way that um, connects back to you guys as collegians. Okay, so as scripture speaks, let's listen to it. Let's try to see it from the perspective of what Jesus is trying to tell them. And then we'll go from there. So here's the criticism. I'll start reading from verse 20. I have this against you, that's Jesus saying, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now that name is familiar, Jezebel. Uh, it's an Old Testament reference, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Uh, this was the wife of King Ahab of the northern kingdom, Israel. And Jezebel was um, a pretty wicked lady. So she steered Ahab over and over again away from faithfulness to God and into the worship of pagan gods. Over and over again, she kept pushing and persuading and even really on some level, I mean, just behind the scenes, um, you know, creating the reasons for Ahab to kill God's prophets and even murdering an innocent man. His name is Naboth. So this lady who is the wife of the king, I mean, she was doing everything she could to push the king who was supposed to reign over tribes of God's people as far away from fidelity and obedience to God as possible. And if there was someone that would be a homewrecker in a very spiritual sense, in a very politically ruinous sense, it would be her. Uh, she was not looking out for his best interest. She was not looking out for God's glory in everything that she did. And so this Jezebel reference would have clicked right away. People oh, no, bad Jezebel. Probably why you don't know many people even today named Jezebel. 
it's not a popular name. Uh, maybe some people are picking that up as a, a kind of a cool name to have now, but it's not traditionally popular. Now, people wonder, okay, well, is Jezebel then kind of like a real person's name? Is it a person at all? Is it describing like a movement? Is it an organization? Um, you know, scholars debate a variety of things, but I mean, when you look at it, to me, it seems like it's a specific, specific person at least, because there seems to be like a give and going of action and reaction of this person to the Christians in Thyatira. Doesn't seem like it's just kind of like somebody or some movement out there that's not personally involved. Somebody, maybe that's not her real name, Jezebel. Someone is personally claiming that they are a prophetess. Someone is personally saying things that are against what scripture has revealed and also what the pastors and, and you know the, the people, the teachers are teaching in that church. Somebody is misdirecting the Christians who have put their faith in Jesus and have put themselves in a place where they're serving, they're active and they're faithful, but they're trying to intentionally lead them astray so that they are no longer trusting and following Christ. Even if outwardly they could be doing things, they are being led astray from Jesus. That seems like what I see here, um, and many would agree. So what exactly did she do? Well, you see in verse 20, she did these few things. First of all, she gives herself a title. She's a prophetess, and a prophet amongst God's people is a huge thing. Um, I think it's questionable to wonder, you know, whether uh, someone like her would be given that title prophetess, or that that person would be speaking the words of God at this stage uh, in church history. Now, God calls leaders in churches, um, you know, to both teach scripture, uh, but then also to speak on his behalf. Uh, she seems to be saying that she's a prophetess and taking then that authority to be able to lead and guide people with what she's doing. Uh, and then this is what she is actually telling them to do. And the description makes it seem very sinister that she's seducing them. She's in, their, in her teaching, getting them to do something that maybe if it was up to them, they wouldn't want to do, or they wouldn't think it's okay. But then she's constantly kind of making it, oh, don't worry about it. No, 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 that's, the Bible doesn't say something against that. Or oh, no, 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 God is not offended by that. And she's just kind of pulling them along to be able to commit and do things that they shouldn't be doing as followers of Christ. Two specific areas are mentioned, sexual morality and food sacrificed to idols. And the reason why those two are mentioned, because those two are very basic things as relates to God's design for the world and God's glory and his desire to be worshipped among his image bearers in this world. And so if you're able to get Christians to no longer trust in God's design for a man and a woman to be married and to be one and to have children who are image bearers to disciple them to know and love God, then that's an issue. If you're able to get Christians to say, you know what, yeah, yeah I'm a Christian. I, I, I worship, I, I attend church on Sundays and I give, but you know what, for the rest of my life, I'm going to live, or the other parts of my life, I'm going to live to worship idols. I'm going to pursue lesser gods. I'm going to pursue temporary priorities to feed my desires. Then you're pretty much going to be losing these Christians to God as being the master. Someone else will be the master of their lives. So this is kind of what she's doing. And it seems like she's doing it in a very sneaky kind of way. Although at this point, it's pretty obvious. There's certainly a movement. There's probably division in this church. So this is then what um, God has done. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent 
but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So this is where we find ourselves now, that this Jezebel is active and working in the church in Thyatira, and people are being led astray. I want to share with you a quote that um, was helpful for me. Uh, this is by a commentary writer named Robert Mounts. Uh, he shared a little bit more insight uh, about what this might have looked like in Thyatira. Sorry if it doesn't come across too clear. I'm, I'm just going to read it for you. Uh, one thing we can state with a sense of confidence, the problem in Thyatira centered on the guilds. Remember what I mentioned about the trades and the unions and people working in industry? For persons to maintain their livelihood, some connection, indeed membership in the guilds was a virtual necessity. For Christians, the problem was that this mandated participation in the guild feasts, which themselves involved, quote, meat offered to idols, since the patron gods of the guilds were always worshipped at the feast, at times, this could also involve immorality. He goes on to say, whenever Christians refused to participate in the feasts because such participation would compromise their faith, they faced the anger of the pagan populace, and it had economic repercussions if they lost their jobs. At Thyatara, the problem was more economic and social, and Jezebel probably taught that there was nothing wrong with a Christian taking part in the guilt feasts and celebrations, for it was merely civil. Since idols were nothing, Christians would not destroy their faith by participating. So that's helpful for us, I hope, to be able to see that there's a counterculture, or maybe it's a dominant culture. Christians tend to be a counterculture, but there's a dominant culture of, yeah, you know, you're part of this trade, you worship this God, you give to this cause, you participate in whatever they do, which could be then, you know, sexual morality outside of marriage and just with whoever, whatever it is that they normally do. And Jezebel saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what, I mean, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, God's, God's forgiven you. You know, don't judge. Uh, that kind of thing. Well, this fundamentally comes down to an issue, doesn't it? Who did Jesus describe himself to be? He described himself to be the greatest of all. What did he teach in the Sermon on the Mount? He says you cannot have two masters. Right? You will either love God or love money. So... Jezebel is setting things up so that they might verbally or even by their participation say, oh, yeah, I worship Jesus. But by the rest of their lives and really where their heart is, they're worshiping really what they want. And she's getting away with it. And she's creating a movement. And she's causing division. And this church that has carried on generational faithfulness is about to fall apart because of Jezebel. It would be for us today. And this is the part that I need you guys to hear, and then we keep going. It would be like if there was someone that was in authority teaching you. You can be a faithful Christian and sleep around with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You can watch porn as long as it's not on Sunday. You pursue your same-sex attractions just to explore. You can worship God and wealth at all costs. Accumulate everything you can. Use people. Step on them. Don't make real friends. Don't give of yourself. Seize every opportunity you can to advance, to rise, to be where you want to be that you deserve. But as long as you come to church on Sundays, as long as you stay in touch with your Christian friends, as long as when Easter and Christmas comes around, you know, you're there and your parents are happy, then you're okay. Don't worry about it. Don't judge. Don't judge. God loves you. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't love sinners because he obviously does that's why he sent his son jesus but god is 
so great and so worthy and deserving of worship from his people. I get it if he doesn't receive that worship from people who aren't his, that have not repented and believed and trusted in him. But from his people, how dare they consider that these trivial, secondary, tertiary idols and gods are even deserving of their energy, of their time. See, the people in Thyatira have become more tolerant than Jesus is tolerant. That's why he said, you've become tolerant of Jezebel. And tolerance is not really what it used to mean. Now, if you hear this word tolerance, you will a lot in college. You have if you're in college. Um, tolerance is not a bad thing. Tolerance is a good thing. Tolerance means that you can look at someone in the face and they disagree with you fundamentally in almost every day. But you can be like, you know what? I respect you. I, I, I can see where you're coming from. And maybe I disagree with you, but we can get along. And there then creates an opportunity for dialogue and persuasion, right? That's the classic view of tolerance is that you could be in a total majority country of like a religion or a political party, whatever it is, but then you don't treat those minority people like, oh yeah, yeah, we're just gonna step on you and you have no rights and you can't say what you think. No, no, they can. And I think for what it's worth, probably Americans are kind of good at this kind of thing. But now tolerance is no longer this idea of you can agree to disagree and you have room to persuade. Now tolerance is not only can you not disagree with the dominant narrative, but if you do, then there is something wrong with you. There is something diminished about your judgment. There is something that is less kind about your heart. There is something that is more bigoted about you than somebody that is completely in line with the majority narrative. That's tolerance now. So it's not agree to disagree and have the room to persuade. Now it's whoever speaks the loudest and has the most authority, they get to tell everyone else, no, you have to believe this, whether you could prove it or not, whether there's an argument for it or not, you have to believe this or you're canceled. That's tolerance today. That's really hard. I, I, um, I don't blame even Christians, whether raised in a home that's Christian or even not, but if you're raised in a church, I don't blame you for feeling like you're in a difficult situation when you go into the world. I don't blame you. Because who doesn't want to possibly lose friends, lose job opportunities, have the chance to just excel and do the things that, that you love and have been trained for. And college years are exactly when you're being tested for this. And also when I think the message is the loudest in your ear. I don't blame you. But at the end, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is not, as much as this is a criticism, he's not beating up on this church. He's mad at Jezebel. And he's warning the church to not follow her. Why? Because he loves this church and he loves people too much to leave them as they are. We're reminded of what Christ did and why he came to the world to save sinners. He loves people too much to leave them in their sin and to leave them in their brokenness with temporary answers that fade with time and that fall apart to protest. Jesus is too, much, too big for this. So what did 
God do with Jezebel? Well, I'll go ahead and keep reading, starting from verse 21. Give her time to repent. She refuses to repent of sexual immorality, so she's going to keep doing her thing. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Is God upset about this? Yes. Really upset. Jesus is really upset, people. Like, this is one of those things you read it and you can't be like, oh, yeah, let's just, that was a nice devotion today. He's really, really upset. He told her to change. She does not change. She continues to teach these lies and stir division within the church. So, what is the punishment? He's going to cast her to a sickbed. Um, she's going to be judged harshly, and her followers are as well. I mean, sickbed, I don't know, maybe it's physical sickness, uh, sickbed, uh, maybe it's something spiritual, other trials, but then it extends to other generations of people that are pursuing this path that she has laid out for this church. Yeah, you could be a Christian, but that's pretty much her path. But I don't want us to, in the midst of all this, uh, what seems to be, you know, anger and, and uh, judgment, miss something here. Um, repeated two times in these three simple verses are the words repent. He called her to repent. She didn't. He says, all these things will happen unless the people repent. It isn't that the heart of God. The heart of God is always one for which his kindness calls people to repentance. So it, it's both. It's always both. It's truth and love, isn't it? It's not truth without love, which is bam, 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 die, right? Because they deserve it. But it's also not love without truth in the same way that if you can sincerely help somebody out of their predicament, whatever it is, that you don't, that you leave them where they are. They say, this is your problem. You were born in this text. That was your station in life. That was the mistakes that you made. Who cares? That's truth and love when they're not both there. So there's always a call to repentance, but the call to repentance is to call them to Jesus. And Jesus is great. And we just saw that earlier. Let's go on. To verses 24 and 25. All right, so this is then the application. This is what he wants them to do. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So those who have not followed Jezebel and those who are willing to repent, kind of the same boat then, right? The first thing that he tells them is that you're free. You've been set free. I'm not putting any pressure on you. I'm not going to just judge you because I'm greater than you. I'm not going to push you down because I can. You're free. Live out that freedom. Hold on to what you already have and wait until I return. By the way, every single month on Sundays, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're in the spirit of this. We take the Lord's Supper to be reminded of Christ's work on the cross, 
but then also to put our hope tangibly in something we can participate in in his return. This hope has not changed in 2000 years that Christians wait for the return of Christ. This has not changed. And if that's something that makes you feel kind of cool to share that hope, um, I feel the same. It's pretty cool. Um, well, so it says, hold on to what you have. Exactly what do they have? I want to just really quickly take us back to Revelation 1, 4 through 8. I'll go ahead and read it for us. So again, this is an introduction that kind of presents this grand Jesus, right? John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, God. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, reigning. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the rulers of kings on earth. Death cannot keep him down. He has complete control and power over every single earthly ruler that sits on any kind of earthly throne. But to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He wants to have a relationship with you. The greatest being God wants to have a relationship with broken, simple us. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And verse 8 says this, I am the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So who do these Christians at Thyatira have? They have Jesus, the true King and God. They have his power that has set them free from sin and its punishment and has brought them together to be a people. And they have his promises that he will return. And this carries through history to even be something that gives us hope today. That's who they have. Jesus says, hold on to that. Don't forget that because you can get distracted with the smaller things, but don't forget Jesus. Verses 26 to 29 then talks about the promise then to the church of Thyatira. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So number one, those that persevere and that are faithful to Christ and continue to just repent and believe in him, which is how they became Christians in the first place, then they will rule with Jesus someday. You find that mentioned in millennium, Revelation 20. You find that mentioned again in Revelation 22 at the end. The new heavens and new earth that God's people will reign with him. To be able to share that relationship, to be able to share that partnership in reigning. We don't deserve it, but that is the promise for God's people who are faithful. And then finally, Jesus is the morning star. That's mentioned in Revelation 20. He is the prize. That ultimately, heaven is going to be great because Jesus is there. And you will have Jesus. Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You will have Christ not just for this season, not just through your trials, not only through your mountaintop experiences, but forever. He
He is the bright and morning star, and you will reign with him. So let's talk a little bit about you guys as collegians. Because when this letter ends with he who has a year, let him hear what the spirit of the, says to the churches, all of a sudden that extends to all of us, doesn't it? We are a church. We may actually break out into many more churches when school starts. And so this message from Jesus is for all of us who want to follow Jesus and who are. But for those of you in our midst, I know that some of you here aren't Christians. This message is for you too to listen, to be able to hear, wow, you know, what is this Christianity thing all about? You know, why is it so important? Why does it call us to such single-minded obedience and following of Christ? Well, um, for you guys as college students, I think what you're going to encounter and what you constantly have to battle are the three Ps. Person, position, and possession. And you've probably heard this before. Those would be the particular things in life that you can pursue for which for maybe a temporary moment or a season, you see advantage or worldly gain, even if it means that you're going to compromise what you know to be right and true as revealed in God's word. And as you know, the gospel to not only say and direct, but also to infer and to imply when we are seeking God and his kingdom and his righteousness. What does that look like in life? So we talk about people, it's going to be your relationships whether it's your roommates, whether it's your friendships, the people in your classes and groups. It's gonna be the people that you're interested in. It's gonna be the people that you want to be near. It's gonna be people that you want another thing to do with. Relationships really drive so much of what the college experience is like. And what sets you free from home is actually what sets you towards then this whole new series of relationships. And those could definitely become idols and distractions. It could be teammates in a particular project. And certainly it could be people of romantic desire. I'd be very surprised if you guys, I actually, I not surprised. I would just be like, what is wrong with you people? If you guys go through college without romantic attraction and desire to people. That just makes you normal, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it could be an idol. And it also could be something that stumbles and causes compromise in your life, okay? So people. Two, position. You might want to get that leadership role in a class project. You might want to get that internship that very few people can get. You might want to get up there in the rankings and grades. You might want to have spheres of influence in certain areas of life in college. And you'll do whatever it takes to get there. Finally, possession. What can you have? What can you buy? What can you experience? Where can you go? What can you do? What can you see? How can you enjoy life? Because isn't that what everyone is supposed to want to do? Above all things, enjoy life. Do the minimum amount of work to get the maximum amount of pleasure. To live life to the fullest because you don't have tomorrow. Or who knows about tomorrow, perhaps. Now, don't get me wrong. You've got to live for the present. But I think there's a difference between soaking in the present and reflecting on it and making the most of it and not miss it versus everything that you're doing has zero consideration of this eternity that stands in front of all of us. That at some point, part of waking up and maturing has to be like, you know what? 
I'm going to die in 50 years and I need what I do and what I care about and what I'm striving for to matter after I go into the grave. That needs to matter to me. But we don't always have that perspective. And I think college is one of those first milestones in which once you enter, you're like, screw this. I'm just going to do whatever I want. But if Christ is ahead of us, we need to see and look for him. We need to want and desire him. And we need to trust that what he has is better for us than what we could strive for on our own. So people, position, and possessions would be the ways in which if there's a modern age Isabel, and there are many actually, there's a modern age Isabel trying to influence followers of Jesus to compartmentalize their lives and compromise their faith, it would be in those three areas. So then what's a Christian to do? What is somebody that is considering whether they want to follow Jesus? Is this worth it? Why? Well, I think it helps to come back to Christ. Because what you don't want is to live out a, a set of behavior that's primarily from the outside in, what people see, rather than it reflecting what your heart's desire is and how you want to live. That will not last for long. You will fall apart if you're trying to live a life that you don't believe in. It doesn't matter how pleasant that is or how, I don't know, just sanitized that is. It doesn't matter. So at the end of the day, we want to grow in loving Jesus, okay? First and foremost, grow to love Jesus. And I want to just um, give to you this list of five priorities for you to pursue from John Piper. If you're in college, he actually specifically wrote the short little blog post on how to stay Christian in college. And he said these five things. Number one, prepare for war. That don't take the college years as these are the coasting years spiritually. Actually expect it to be harder. Expect to fight expect to wrestle, expect to have everything you were told and that you were brought up believing and that you read from God's word that you had an understanding of, all of those things will be challenged. Church will be hard. Fellowship will be weird. Setting a new life on your own is going to be different. Expect war. But it's not a war to be mean. It's not a war just to be difficult. It's a war because we live in a world that is described as being in the midst of a spiritual warfare. It's war because now your life is more real than it was under the protection of your parents as a youth. That's why it's war. You don't have the immediate covering of your parents as closely. That's why it's war. You feel the war because the covering is gone more than it was before. So prepare for that war. Don't be lackadaisical. Don't think, oh, I'll just get by. You know, I, yeah, I remember my you know, four sermons from Unicoi and that'll last me the rest of my college careers. No. Dive into that relationship with God. Grow a deeper and nearer love for Jesus as a college student. Prepare for war. Secondly, don't just fall into then trends and feelings. Love the word. Develop a habit with engaging with God's word. It's not about how much time. Some of you, I know, I, I'm there, okay? Some of you, if you read more than five minutes, you're just like, you're, you're so bored, you're falling asleep, okay? Some of you can read for an hour. But the issue is engagement is if you read for three minutes and that's all you can handle for now, how are you letting God's word speak to you and challenge your thoughts and engage with your heart and being applied then when you're done? That's the point. Make time for that every single day. Like you would make time for your best friend. Like you would make time for you know, your favorite teammate. Like you would make time you know, for someone that you're close to. Love the word because that's how God speaks to us primarily. Third, invest 
in a church. This is not the time where, oh, I'm done with Unicoi, I'm out. No, no, this is the time in which I'm done with Unicoi, I get to choose. And I'm gonna choose to be committed to a church. I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna be in a local church because just as my identity as a student is validated by the fact that I'm registered at a school, your identity as a Christian is validated by your belonging in the church. You can say you're a student, but you're on independent study if you're not registered with the school. You're not officially a student. It's more than the money, it's your identification. If you're a Christian and you don't tether yourself to a church as quickly as you can, you're alone. That's not the Christian life, to be alone as a Christian, kind of wandering out there without support, without community, without the opportunity to serve. You need to invest in a church now even more than ever, just as much as a school is a man-made institution for you to learn and grow and develop. The church is a God-ordained institution for you to grow in maturity and to serve and to belong. You need a church, wherever it is that you go. And if you happen to be nearby and you're already part of CBC Walnut, this is where we'd love to have you and grow with you. But you need a church. If it's not here, somewhere. You need to belong and invest in the church. Find good friends, people that'll tell you the truth. Not just what you want to hear, and also not avoiding what you don't want to hear. Make good friends. You don't need a lot. See, like two. I like one. <laughs> okay, just make friends. Make good friends. Um, that's really helpful because people from outside, uh, they don't know you. Uh, I think there's always a reason in which uh, you know your, your heart can be deceived. You need some good friends. And we're here then to support you as well, whether it's uh, you know the pastors or student leaders or just the people in this church. We want to walk with you. There's nothing uh, that you can tell us that we're going to be like, oh, man, no, we're not talking anymore. And finally, ask for help. But ask for help to God. Have you noticed that when you struggle uh, as a collegian, one of the first things that you don't want to do is you don't want to pray. You kind of feel ashamed. You don't want to talk to God. You're like, oh, God already knows that I can't face him. you got to flip that. So God already knows, so you might as well go to him. You just got to flip that, okay? But we naturally want to distance ourselves from God when we sin. We, this is built into us, especially when the Holy Spirit lives in you. You, you. you don't feel like you can coexist in the same space with God because he is perfectly holy and righteous and just. But that's when you need God. That's when he wants you. That's when he listens to you in ways that you've never felt before because you know that he will never leave you or forsake you. That's why he sent his son to save you. So ask for help through prayer. So these then um, are gonna be the application questions I wanna encourage you guys to consider. And this is the, the really the heartbeat of what we try to do here on Friday nights. We preach a sermon to you, we preach a message to you, we give a teaching to you, but making disciples means that we're teaching you to obey all that God has commanded. So it's about what you do with it when you leave these doors. If you listen to a great sermon or a poor sermon or a mediocre sermon, but whatever the case, you do nothing about it, you're not going to grow. So these two questions are supposed to help you to consider what you're going to do about it. You don't have to do everything. You don't have to do a giant thing. You don't have to do what your neighbor is doing, but you need to do something because that's what it means to simply trust and obey Christ is to do something. Now, question number one, uh, if you want to go here first, I know some of you guys are freshmen, your first years. And so I want this to actually be intentionally uh, kind of a, a challenge for the upperclassmen, okay? In your groups, I want the upperclassmen to just share about ways in which maybe 
people, positions, or possessions have challenged your relationship with God? Just be honest. I mean, I know you guys are pretty honest people already, actually. I, I don't even question that. You, you kind of tell it as it is already. But you know what? Just tell these, you know, first year, second year students, you know, what were some of the ways in which you were challenged in, in your relationship with God? Don't have to paint a rosier picture than the truth. But just tell them, because I think that'll help them. Share wisdom. Tell them the challenges. Tell them what you experienced. Tell them what to look for. The second question, if you want to go here, is which one of the priorities from Piper would you like to grow in? There were five. Um, you don't have to do all five, but maybe consider one. Maybe there was one that stood out to you. You're like, no, I need to do this. I need to think more about this and commit to that. And then that can just be a prayer request when you pray for each other. Okay. All right, let me go and pray for us and then send you guys out. And according to Gabe, you could stay here till 1130. I don't know if he needs that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's pray. Uh, Father, so thank you so much. Thank you for this time. Thank you for all these collegians that um, are uniquely made. And because you sent your son into the world to save sinners. Father, that they are uniquely loved. So God, I, I just want to pray, Lord, that, that you would allow this time of, of sharing and of of prayer and of uh, just reflection on their personal and collective experiences. Be one in which they could build each other up. Father, that they could find your goodness that leads to repentance, that they could be honest with each other and then encourage one another to follow you, to know you, to deepen their walk with you. Lord, I just want to thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for um, the opportunity that, that, that we can still be in your word and to be able to walk out these doors, Lord willing, and to do something about it. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that, especially during zero month, when we're kicking everything off. God, may it start with you. May we care about nothing else more than having a relationship and a single-minded vision and obedience to you. Help us, God, to do that together with each other. Help us, God, to both feel and experience the community that you designed us to have, but then also to be useful in serving and to encourage and to bless other people the way that you designed for us to have. We do pray, Lord, uh, for those in our midst. Maybe there are questions. Maybe there are doubts about who you are. We pray, Lord, that those would come to the surface and that they would find landing places where they could be addressed, whether in our groups or outside. We also pray, Lord, that as this passage speaks specifically to the topics of sexual sins and idolatry, Father, that there might be some in our midst that are struggling with those exact things. May you set us free. May you help us to experience your forgiveness. And may we repent and believe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.